Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who is working behind the scenes in the food world. Today, my guest is not only working behind the scenes in the food world, but she's working in the world of the unseen and the invisible. If you want to know about the force that connects life and death, that connects all humans who touch, you'll want to listen as I talk to Eugenia Bone. Eugenia has just published a book called Microbia, A Journey into the Unseen World Around You. It's about microbes. Yes, it's in the news, of course, because people are focusing on gut health. But as Gina can tell you, there is so, so much more. Gina uh, is a prolific writer. I first met her when uh, she was doing recipes for Food & Wine magazine, um, I think even before your first book, The Mesa's Edge. Um, and I got to know her uh, first through her father and a story that we did with Ed Giobi, her dad, and Jacques Pépin. And as time has gone on, I've watched Gina focus from the really large world of recipes down to the smaller world of Mushrooms, which is her last book, and now down to this invisible scale, which is microbes. So, Gina, welcome. Thank so you. happy to have you. Thank you, Dana. So, in some ways, I feel like you've been heading towards this book your entire life. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> because you've always seen the interconnection of things, the interconnection of um, the seasons and what we eat and how we live. And now you've come down to the most, like the smallest, most elemental part of life. When I think about that great time that we spent with your father and walking around um, the land and, you know, seeing where the sausage was hanging and seeing the wine and seeing it all come together in the kitchen and then thinking about what you're doing today, it just seems like there's a through line. Uh, is, is this an imaginary connection that I'm making or is it is it there somehow? No, it's absolutely there. Ultimately, I think that I'm just, I'm interested in how one thing leads to another. And that's really evident in food and in my kind of fascination with how you can use waste streams of foods that you make to make other foods. So the interconnectedness of the kitchen is just a reflection, is a reflection of those same ideas. But then, you know, the smaller you get into looking at the connections of things, like the connections between different microbial um, organisms, bacteria and fungi and mm -hmm. Um, in a way, the connections become more and more profound because they affect all things that live. 
I love that because I've always thought food was pretty profound because that um, creates connections between people. Yes. But in fact, you have found more profundity in the, the smaller elements. Tell me about that. Well, right now, let's just talk about connections for a minute. Right now, you and I are going to spend some time together in this room, and we're both uh, shedding bacteria um, from our scalps and our skin and our various orifices, bacteria and um, yeast cells and dead skin cells. And we all go through life in this cloud of microbial debris. So we're all like pig pen? Yes, exactly. We're microbial pig pens. Yes, but the more time you and I spend together the more homogenized our two unique clouds. I mean, of course, there's a lot of similar microbes because we're the same species. But over time, the longer that throughout the course of this hour, our microbial clouds will homogenize and we are going to become more and more connected um, as a result. Like we're like two Venn diagram. We're like a Venn diagram of Dana and Gina. And in the center is our microbial homogenized um, cloud. Okay, um, that's weird. And so uh, what happens to our homogenized cloud, the, the Gindana? So um, this thing that's happening right now of our, you know, shedding our, our, microbi- our skin uh, microbes um, will settle to the floor after we leave. And when the good folks here at Roberta's walk through, or Heritage Radio walk through, they'll just um, kick us up. <laughs> um, we're, wow. so, and eventually, you know, they'll disperse and, and so on. But that is, I mean, it's really another way of defining friendship or family. Because you, with your children, you're constantly in a state of homogenized microbes from kissing and from uh, just being in each other's presence, from hugging, all that. I, I, I love that um, notion because I think also with husbands and wives or people who live together, that homogenization happens and they become one, right? Like my microbes become more like whoever I'm living with. Yeah, it's just like milk. You know, they get milk from one farm and milk from another farm and to homogenize it becomes a single product. And that's true in spaces. It's true... Um, in uh, the intimacy of families, it's true between lovers, it's true between friends and in communities. So, um, <laughs> I'm just thinking of all you know, all of the sloughed off cells I'm sharing with um, with my friends all the time. It doesn't sound so appealing, all those cells sloughing off all the time. But I guess that it's just fine because they're very, very small. Um, one of the things that we are reading about so much right now is, um, you know, the the gut, right? And so the microbes in our guts and what we should do about them and how we should feed them and how we should take care of them and how they're going to take care of us. Um, I need an update on that. Like, can you just cut through all of the microbial cloud clutter and tell me <laughs> what I should be thinking about that? There's a lot of material coming, you know, new research coming in all the time. I mean, if you're like me and you have a, like one of those Google flags on bacteria, it pretty much clogs <laughs> your email daily. <laughs> Um, so the way the microbiology scene, especially regarding the gut microbiome, where there's a lot of work being going on, the way it's evolving is it's sort of like a gigantic jigsaw puzzle with lots of little pieces. And so each bit of information, each paper is like another piece in this puzzle. The whole, um, the image of the puzzle hasn't been completed, right? So, um, so the, the science is evolving. That said, what I try to do in my book is to have some overall principles that you can apply or that make sense of this incomplete puzzle. So the thing that helped me the most in understanding my relationship with the uh, microbes that live in my guts and on my skin and my scalp and so on um, is to think of it well, is to think of it in terms of a very famous um, example from bio class that I learned when I went back to school, and that is the wolves in Yellowstone Park. So the, um, there used to be wolves in Yellowstone Park, uh, and the wolves were preying on ranchers' sheep. So the ranchers complained, and the parks department got rid of the wolves. As a result, 
the deer started to, the deer population increased, they overgrazed the willows, they hung out in the stream banks, they beat up the stream banks, they ate all the willows, there was no willows for the beers to, beavers to build their dams. You know, it had these cascading effects, it just, you know, sort of tanked the ecology. Um, it's not, and then the wolves were put back, uh, they were reintroduced and the ecology uh, restabilized. The, the takeaway is it's not the deer that are the um, problem. It was the numbers of deer. It was deers without their natural predators. And so the same thing is going on in your gut. You have an ecology of organisms that over evolutionary time have reached a certain um, ecological stability. And when you take something like antibiotics and you wipe out the wolves or you wipe out the deer, you end up screwing with the, the stability of that eco ecology and you get diarrhea or worse. So I find that a helpful way to think. You know, if you think about your body more as park management. <laughs> um, I'll try. <laughs> yeah. it, you know, it's, it's useful. And, and, and when you read these papers or you read these headlines about the gut microbiome, you can start putting it, you can start putting these pieces, these puzzle pieces together and get a bigger, bigger picture. I, I feel like a lot of the conversation, though, is take prebiotics, take probiotics, um, eat fermented foods. You're very passionate about preserved foods. Right. Um, fermented foods that comes from your life as a cook. Uh, were you surprised when you put those things all together? Hey, I love fermented things. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, now I'm studying the microbiome and it, they all work together. Totally. Well, when I wrote about um, preserving, which I've done in a couple of my cookbooks, you know, that's all about killing microbes, except in the case of fermentation. But if you can, your fermented product, if you can, your, your sauerkraut, um, then you're killing the microbes. You're you're making it quiet. It's ma you're making it still. There's no you know active ecology happening anymore. So so that's you know, preserving is how to take microbes out of the picture. Um, whereas uh, you know now I'm like interested in okay. So what do those microbes do when they're in the picture, and why, and and how are they actually beneficial versus you know in the case of a canned good. Not so beneficial. <laughs> right, because that could kill you, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, that would be bad. Um, although then we're back to microbes, and, you know, some microbes can eat the whatever. There's, there is life to death, right? Because you were talking about um, your fascination with death and microbes. Yes, yes. So, all right. So that's like a very cool subject when you think about, you know, we have, we carry with us um, microbes that maintain our health, but then once we die and oxygen isn't coming in anymore and, um, uh, and our immune systems are, are quiet or finished, you know, not active, then other populations of microbes that are present increase. And so they are our undoing. In fact, microbes like bacteria and their sister microbe archaea, these are like really simple, simple organisms. They don't even have a nucleus in their cell. Um, they bridge the living and non-living worlds. They take nutrients out of the atmosphere and from minerals, and they terrestrialize them and make it av available to the rest of the food chain. And then they disassemble um, and return those nutrients back into the pool of opportunity. Um, so they are... Uh, they are performing this. To me, it's almost like a spiritual type of role. It's sort of God's work, if yeah. you if you believe in that. Yeah. Um, well, you can call it God's work. That's fine with me. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to God being in the details, God is in the microbes. Yeah. Um, which okay. is very small. Which are very small. <laughs> like details, weren't they? <laughs> uh, okay. But I do want to go back to um, this small obsession I have because... Uh, I want to know, am I supposed to take probiotics? Am I supposed to take oh, right. prebiotics? Right. Help me right, out right. there. Okay. What's the answer? So what are probiotics? Probiotics, are is that's live bacteria. Um, and am I supposed to believe that there's really billions of live bacteria when I take a spoon of something? Well, yeah, the problem with supplements and commercial probiotic products is um, what probiotics are in there, what is there live counts? You know, what was the growing process? What was the um, manufacturing process? The shipping? All of these um, 
all of these elements can affect the viability of that of uh, those probi of those bacterial colonies. And then are they the ones you need? Are they the ones you need in the numbers that you need them? That's all kind of a crapshoot. You just you're you're not you may hurt yourself if you take too many probiotics because you'll be messing around with that ecological balance. The parkland. The park. Right. But, um, uh, you know, just as likely or more likely, you're probably just spending your money um, for, for nothing. If you really want to get some good probiotics, make your own sauerkraut, make your own yogurt, and have that as a regular part of your meal. Because probiotics are, you know, we're talking about transient in many ways, in many cases, transient microbes. They're coming in, they're doing some good work, and then they're coming out the other end. So you have to keep this supply. So it's really most effective if you're going to, from what I've read so far, um, it's most effective to use probiotics as a part of, let's just say, fermented foods that are heavy in this lactobacillus that um, produces, you know, some good stuff for your body, uh, to constantly be eating fermented foods as part of your diet. Prebiotics is bacteria food. Right? Uh-huh. So, um, and there's a, a, an array of um, bacterial species, genus, uh, genera and species that live in your um, guts that are fiber fermenters. They need fiber. They aren't doing, what they're doing is they are, they're byproducts of them eating your fiber, the fiber that you eat, they use, and their byproducts are compounds that are necessary to build really important um, stuff like hormones and neurotransmitters. You need them to be happily fed and in adequate numbers in order to, you know, have serotonin in your body. Seems really basic. Which is, you know, it's really fundamental. So they're like the big farm of your uh, body. Those micro, those fiber fermenters, those prebiot, the ones you feed, feed with prebiotics hmm. um, in your, mainly in your colon. The thing is, is if you take, why take a prebiotic supplement? That's just so weird. I mean, an <laughs> apple is a prebiotic. And, right. and why is that? Because it feeds the fiber. It's yeah. a fiber feeder. I mean, we don't have the enzymes. We don't, our genes don't make the enzymes to break down cellulose. No animal does. All animals um, have bacteria in their guts that break down that cellulose. We don't use the cellulose. They use the cellulose, but their byproducts help us build important compounds that we need to be healthy. That means we were left sort of incomplete when we were finished, right? Because <laughs> having the prebiotics, you actually you need to get them from someplace else. Well, that's if you think of evolution as a linear thing where, you know, we've evolved away from bacteria. But the truth is we've evolved with these bacteria all along. Okay. Um, I just have to ask you, when we met, you know, you were... Um, you know, like a happy, healthy hippie, right? I think that's fair to say. A spectacular cook. You were, you had um, a divine couple of kids, husband, and you you were just, cooking was such a passion and it's something that, um, you know, you was, I don't want to say it was your profession, but it's, you professionalized it. It seems like there's such a distance between that and um, speaking Almost like you know a biology professor, um, but an, a very comprehensible, entertaining one at that. Um, how did that happen? Like, how did what was the evolution inside Gina that went from the one to this really deep place of studying and understanding um, these elements of nature? Um, well, so my path, whether it makes sense or not, I don't know. But I started. Um, I was interested in food because I like to eat food, and I had grown up, uh, I was lucky enough to grow up in a food-forward um, atmosphere, so I had a good palate, um, and I wanted to eat food that tasted really good, and I, was and I knew how to shop for food, for vegetables and so on. Um, so I got into cooking because I was feeding myself. It was personally, totally for my own uh, joy. 
Um, and then uh, I got into mushrooms because they were so curious. They weren't a meat and they weren't a vegetable. There was something in between. And I was interested in that phenomena because I didn't really understand what fungi were early in, you know, whatever, 15 years ago. And then um, uh, at the same time, I had uh, bought a, a a cabin in Colorado with my husband and in the West Elks where our, we have our place there's um, in the fall there's these fantastic fruitings of bolita or the porcini mushrooms in the porcini group um, chanterelles all kinds of beautiful edibles and I wanted I lusted after them again food thing and I wanted <laughs> them um, but I in order to find wild mushrooms uh, without you know taking out your family, you I had to um, learn a little bit about why they grew, why they lived where they did, and that led me into a study of mycology, um, the study of fungi and uh, and mushrooms, the fruiting body of mushrooms, I and mean, the fruiting body of fungi is mushrooms, um, actually of only a small percentage of fungi. Uh, most fungi don't produce mundra, um, mushrooms. They're somewhere between 1.5 and 5 million species, and there's only about 30,000 that produce mushrooms. And we only eat about 34 of those, and about 12 of them will, like, take out your liver. <laughs> so I got really... Sort of stunning numbers. Yeah, yeah, it's surprising, right? There's so many species. Um, and I got really sort of in, fell in love with the... Uh, biology of fungi and, and the role of uh, fungi in providing nutritional services um, to plants. So this is, you know, you hear more and more about mycorrhizal fungi or mycelium. Mm -hmm. So the fungi that lives on and in, in, in the roots of plants, uh, it, the, it the, that fungi forages for nutrients in the soil and delivers those nutrients to plants in exchange for sugars that the plants make from photosynthesis. Um, but then I found out that between the cells of all plants, there was fungi too. Huh. I was like, well, what the hell is it doing there? I mean, why isn't the plant rejecting this thing crawling between its cells? Well, it turns out that that kind of fungi provides immune services to the plant. Wow. It keeps, it, it, it they, sometimes the, like, here's a good example of what endophytic, that means inside plant fungi do. Fescue grass is commonly used for golf courses, but if your pony eats the fescue grass, it'll give it a kind of gangrene that'll cripple it. Um, it's not the grass that's making the pony sick. It's the fungus living between the cells of the grass that makes the pony sick. So the fungus provides a service that wards off herbivores or predators to the grass, and in exchange, it gets sugars from the, from the plant. So that's one of many uh, uh, relationships between fungus and plants. So then <laughs> I started hearing about the gut microbiome, um, you know, reading the newspaper headlines, and, and I was saying, wow, it looks like bacteria do the same thing in us, provide immune functions and um, forge uh, nutrients from the environment uh, on our behalf, that bacteria do the same thing for us, that fungi do for plants. Um, and I was like, well, there's obviously a pattern here. And then I got really excited because grand universal patterns in nature are the thing that really lift me into a sort of spiritual type of realm. And so is that the, the state that I find you in now? I mean, finding spirituality in this connected universe. Yeah, I do. I do. It's... It, Recognize or learning a little bit about how the that our seen world is supported in this um, really profound way, like in terms of our ability to just survive by an unseen life force, this matrix of microbes, to me is the equivalent of what people um, are looking for when they study the different faiths. It's just that it's a scientific answer, which works for me. Okay, with that, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to jump from the scientific to the personal when we come back uh, in just a minute. So stay with us.
Well, she's her own. She's her own female. She's her own female. That's why I like her. I like her a lot. And she don't know that she's her own female. She's her own female, and she don't know. That's why I like her a lot. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, and it is my deep pleasure to have Gina Bone with me today um, on the occasion of the publication of her book, Microbia. So I'm hoping you heard the first part where we're talking about um, spirituality and the microbiome. Um, (laughs) That's not exactly where I expected the conversation to go today, but I'm so happy that it has uh, because seeing the connectedness in the universe is a very, you know, profound way to spend a Monday. So, Gina, I want to just talk about your curiosity, because when I hear the story of how you um, went from just loving and lusting after food to your curiosity about, you know, mushrooms and what are they, that then led you down quite a deep journey into understanding the world of fungi. and that indeed led you to this journey today. Uh, just talk about curiosity and how curiosity drives you as a human. Um, yeah, well, I guess um, it's a s- search for answers, you know, but mostly um, I think that my curiosity is driven by intuitive feeling. So I have an intuitive feeling that something is true. Um, but because of my own self-doubts, uh, I don't just go, uh, and I just, I don't wing it based on my intuition and I look for, um, verification elsewhere. Um, and indeed when I was, got started to get interested in, in microbiology, um, I tried to self-teach. I was, um, I, I tried to read papers and understand anything. I mean, what the hell is a transmembrane protein? I mean, it was just so confusing. So then I tried an um, online course, bio, um, the first sort of online course that came up when you put bio 101 into the <laughs> Google. And uh, that was really difficult in a way, too, because um, I would forget uh, the certain th- the thing every I would forget things I had taught there wasn't the, the in the cl- lesson before and so then I'd have to go on I drop into stuff like can academy and google to try to remember what is the krebs cycle and I just was digging these deeper and deeper holes for myself so finally I kind of came to the realization that if I was going to verify my intuitions that microbes that we're all connected and, you know, I had already sort of gotten there with food and I'd already sort of figured it out a little bit with fungi, but then the bacteria thing, yeah, that was a little heavy for me. So I went back to college and going back to college, I'll, I'll tell you, humility is the um, entry point to studying <laughs> science <laughs> for me. I mean, I was an English major, you know, and I hadn't been back to school. I mean, I just have a bachelor's degree and, and you know, poetry. So, you, so. <laughs> wow. Um, you didn't have any fear, fear of the science, fear of, I mean, because you'd tried it on your own, right? And if it had been me, I'm like, okay, I didn't understand Khan Academy. I, like, I didn't understand any of these papers. I'm not sure it's going to get that much better with a teacher at the front of the room. And that probably would have shut me down right there. But you, was it, you know, confidence that just with enough perseverance, you would conquer the science or your interest was just that deep? You know, I, there's a certain... I do not have the gene for science and math, 
but I do have a kind of stubborn gene. <laughs> if there is such a one, I think I've got it because I just wasn't going to be daunted. Um, and so going back to school was like my last chance of getting somewhere with this material. Uh, and it was hugely challenging. I mean, I'm like, I was the age of the other students' mothers, for sure. You know, I'm at that stage of life where I never remember where I parked the car. <laughs> I'm walking around with my glasses on my head looking for them. You know, those sort of typical things, all of which are not a sign of Alzheimer's. I mean, it's only a real problem if you forget that you drove your car to the store in the That's first really place. That's to know because I, <laughs> yeah. I also show signs of like, you know, where did I leave my wallet? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. the memory. And I was worried about memorizing. I was really worried about tests. I mean, the truth is, is that we, I think that during the course of our lives, we gravitate toward things we're good at. For me, that was reading and writing, metaphors, interpretive stuff like that, and cooking. Um, but cooking has got more science in it than a lot of people think. You know, it's, when you're developing a recipe, you have to be very, very specific, and you have to double-check stuff, and you're weighing it in different ways, and um, weighing product, you know, in different ways. So it wasn't that alien. It was just, you w one wouldn't think that coming from developing panna cotta recipes <laughs> and studying uh, microbiology, um, uh, we're actually utilizing some of the same thinking skills. It's ultimately um, a precise thinking, and then when it comes to writing, evocative language. Mm. Right. Well, I think that's why your book is so delightful to read, because you understand the science, and then you can, you're like a microdigester or whatever those things are called. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Where you, I'm a decomposer. The, you All are right. a decomposer, <laughs> because, you know, when I read it, I'm like, oh, I get this. And oh, that's I don't, great. I don't have that blinded feeling that you say about, like, the Krebs cycle, and I'm like, I know I read about that somewhere but because your uh, use of metaphor is so um, vivid and then your ability to you know, break things down and explain them is so good. The book is just such a great read. Oh, and I, um, I connect perhaps a bit less to the, the science than your journey going from, uh, you know, a non-student, really, really successful in the world to trying something completely new. I mean, at... Did you feel like that was a little crazy? Well, it was my quite husband a bit of time, did. right? I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's it was not years like, and years. It's not like yeah. it was, you know, you're taking a, a course one semester. You know, it, yeah. I mean, the, the, the actual time I was in Columbia was just one year. Um, but I spent many years trying to figure it out beforehand. And then many years, not many, but a couple of years after, um, than utilizing my knowledge. So I was able to read the scientific papers to a degree. I mean, not really weedy, weedy stuff, but enough <laughs> to like navigate my way. Um, uh, so um, college, oh, what was right. it like to go back? I mean, you yeah. were as old as these people's mothers. Has school changed? Yes, it has. I mean, my day, it was like blackboards and Xerox handouts. You know, now it's all digital. Um, I'll never forget my first, I went into a chemistry class, and there was this, I was very nervous, it was the first class, and there was this beautiful girl sitting next to me in teeny tiny hot pants, and she had this long blonde hair, and she kept flipping her hair, and she was, it was splashing across my, my shoulder the, during the course of the, of the class. Well, the teacher had us, um, uh, the teacher had all these slides up about um, signing up for recitation. I didn't even know what recitation was. I was like really hoping somebody would ask in this classroom of 200, you know, 19 to 22 year olds. Um, and at the same time, and then right after that, he launches into this lecture about electron orbitals and all this really, I had no background and I was very confused and but I was thinking, wow, there's this beautiful girl next to me, and she's going to have a social life. And if she can do this, <laughs> then I can do it. And so I'm struggling, taking notes. And I look over her to her at one point, and with her left hand, she has her computer open, and she's signing in for recitation, which is the study groups that you have to attend. And with her right hand, 
she's making notes from the lecture. And I thought, well, I'm screwed. (laughs) (laughs) How did you overcome that? Like, just study harder or what was it? I did. I studied, I just really, you know, bit the bullet and worked really hard. And I asked a lot of questions. And um, I did it in some cases found myself completely out of my um, league, like uh, genetic probabilities. I just couldn't get. It was like trying to reach something on a shelf that was just too short to reach. Uh, And that was very frustrating. But, uh, you know, I just kind of muddled through the stuff that was so far out of my orbit um, and uh, uh, concentrated, put most of my energy into the things that I, I was able to grasp. And I studied really hard. And, and I didn't do that well on the tests. Um, God, that must have been know. so hard. It was horrible. You know, like, you're probably used to getting those great grades. I mean, poetry, probably great grades. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is, you know, I've spent my life doing stuff that I have a natural inclination for. And right. here I was dumping a whole bunch of time and money. It's not cheap to go back to school. It was much cheaper back in my day um, into studying this stuff. And... Uh, uh, it was uh, uh, it was a, a lesson, as I said before. It was like a real lesson in, in humility to to overcome my own to to learn the science. Um, and it was a little prideful too to overcome my own fears of not being a science person, you know. And so, how did you how did you do that? Was that just perseverance too? Because I think there's many people who are listening who probably feel that. You know, the nagging feeling like, I don't know how to do that. I'm not even going to try. And I feel like there's a counterbalance to that, which is, you know, what's the worst thing you could do is fail. I mean, and that's how terrible is that? That's not so bad. But also it's, you know, I think that we think that um, uh, that you can't, that you're, that you can't learn some things, that you're just programmed not to learn some things. And that's just not true. Yeah. That's, that's a fallacy. You can learn whatever you want to learn. It's just really a matter of persistence. Okay. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll think hard about that. There's definitely some things that I'm not so sure that I can learn, but it might be just, <laughs> you know, some, some block and desire. Um, I want to talk about your amazing family because, uh, you know, I've known you as your kids have grown up and, and then your kids, you know, left the house. Another thing that, um, you know, it turned out to be daunting. So one might imagine you have this really full life filled with <laughs> fungi and microbes and um, cooking and friends and really robust life. And yet when, you're, um, you know, when your kids were gone, it sounds like you were su- surprised by how strong your reaction was to that. Yeah. When my, fir- when my first left, you know, I was excited and nervous and proud and, uh, you know, and a little sad to have her go. But it's when the second left that um and went away to college that i had that incri- the uh, you know the classic empty nest experience what it really was about for me was realizing a stage of my life was over and so ultimately it's a kind of um a- awakening to mortality and that also happens when people when folks parents die they'll tell you the same thing you kind of wake to the notion of mortality in a really personal way and so when your kids are all flowing, you know, when there's nobody else, when it's gone, that's over. And then all of and then nostalgia becomes this part of one's life. It didn't for me. Um, and I realized, oh, that feeling of, you know, your, your kid grabbing your hand to walk across the street. One of the best feelings ever. Gone. Yeah. Or the, your, you know, the tears, your children's, the tears that you're, <coughs> excuse me, that, that you're able to... Um, to soothe that's gone as adults you can't do that for them so much <coughs> sorry um and this um and then of course your your parents were getting older at the same time and you're so close to your father um i was also very close to my father i spent every saturday with him we went to antique shops it was sort of the, the happiest uh, family time that I spent was being with him on Saturdays. And you and your dad have an extraordinary routine. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So um, 
after uh, <clears throat> my son went away to college, I was like very mopey and was crying and stuff. So I called my dad, and um, I said, you know, Dad, I'm uh, I'm really upset that that Mo has gone away, and now my I, my kids are gone. And he said, well, you need to um, get involved in another project. And he said, why don't we do a book together on um, uh, on uh, recipes for uh, baby foods, you know, to help young mothers do good cooking for their children. And I was like, no, I'm over. I mean, the kid <laughs> thing gone. is done. <laughs> I said, I'm interested in the next stage. How do we, how do you cook in deep old age? How are you, um, how are you managing to cook for your, um, your, your increasing age? Because he cooks two meals a day for himself. He gardens. He's really a man of the earth. He makes his own wine, all that stuff that, that you saw those years ago still going strong on it. So he said, all right, um, I'll meet you. And we made an agreement where um, every, every Friday morning we meet on Arthur Avenue at Tino's Delicatessen, 9 a.m. Anybody wants to come, come by. Uh, we meet at 9 a.m. I'm coming. I'm uh, really, your dad's amazing, you're amazing, and I bet Tino's Delicatessen is spectacular. What's your standing order? Oh, well, we just have coffees to start Just there, coffees, okay. And then we do a little shopping there, and and then I follow Ed on his path, which is the same. He's a man of habits, so it's the same path. He hits the same stores in a row. He has a little, like, chatting up, telling some jokes, speaking a little Italian to all the different vendors that he visits. And during the course of that shopping morning, it takes a few hours, um, he gives me the recipes, and I, I, I write down all the recipes that he's made during the week. Um, and does he, as a man of habit, does he do different recipes every week? How is that possible? Oh, yeah, because it's evolving. He's not, like, looking at at recipes and books and shopping for them. He's going into the market. He's seeing what looks good, and he's responding to the seasons and what's there. And his cooking style, he's central Italian of origin. And so the the cooking style has, um, like a lot of the Abruzzese chefs, it's it's not so much about a – the the mentality is to do – uh, these very savory combinations with few ingredients um, and some unusual cooking techniques. So, um, Give so me that's an what he applies. Well, like a potaccio, for example. So that would be uh, cooking a protein with um, wine, uh, savories like garlic and, and herbs, until it's really quite dry. It's it's not. It's like a very very dry braise. Um, and then often a vegetable will be added toward the end, like um, broccoli di rape or the Swiss chard or even potatoes, something like that. Um, that sounds remarkable. It's just super, super simple and very savory. Hmm. I mean, like lots of flavor. Um, and then you can sex it up with uh, capers or um, olives and, you know, things like that. Um, so I got really interested in how he, he he's in robust health. I mean, he's just tough as a baseball mitt. And he, <laughs> at 91. At 91. And um, he, uh, I got really interested in how he was feeding himself uh, and maintaining his health. He was really responding to his body. So he wasn't looking outside of himself for answers to what made him feel good. So, for example... He doesn't eat pasta at night, and he doesn't eat raw vegetables at night. It's harder to digest. You know, his body is too active, so he doesn't sleep as well. So I saw I have all of these soup recipes and egg recipes that he has at night now. Makes it easier for him to sleep. And then also some turkey stuff, because, you know, turkey helps you fall asleep. Okay, it has tryptophan. Yeah, so he's doing stuff like that, but he's not doing it because he read about it in a magazine he's doing it because he's listening to his body and um and then for lunch he eats more robust he only drinks um during lunch although i i noticed i think he's taking a little snort of uh, brandy in the morning <laughs> just to like get up but you know in general he's um he just uh is focusing the most heavy stuff bread and so on during the day uh and so i've been tracking these recipes and even though there are you know they're they're not old people food. Mm-hmm. They're just um, uh, they're just age responsive foods. So one of the things that I mean I love that I noticed he was making is that he would bake a potato, 
um, and that like an Idaho potato, and then put a little olive oil and salt and pepper on it, and then he poached an egg, hmm. and he put that on top with a little olive oil and some um, uh, and some parsley, and it was just so elegant. So elegant, and actually so of the moment. I really not why he did it, but I bet there's some It really, is of the moment. <laughs> well, sure, there's probably great yolk porn. You know, you put the knife in, and the yolk oh, goes, yeah. <laughs> and it makes that potato so delicious, yeah, and yeah. the little green for color, and anyway, I, clearly not what he has in mind, but in the age of Instagram, that's all I can think of. That'd be so great to see. I'll tell you, Dana, when uh, I started working on this micro book, Edward, I call my dad Edward because at his age, <laughs> you know, I have to call him by his full name. Um, he was really hot for getting a um, one of these st- stool analyses because he was quite sure, you know, you can find out what microbes are present yes. in your guts. He was quite sure that he was going to have this. Like, I mean, he treated it like it. He was gonna like it was a test. He knew he was gonna ace. <laughs> yeah, he he thought for sure test. his microbes were gonna be better you know, than everybody else's. Oh yeah, they were yeah. gonna show like some incredible diversity and all of these fiber from it. So we did the test. Um, I mean, he was really bragged about his poops on a regular basis, <laughs> and he, um, in fact, he even offered to give me some of his to sell for fecal transplants on the internet. He oh said to God. subsidize my writing income. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Um, so we did the test and sent it in to a, a company called Ubiota, and um, what came back uh, really kind of pissed Ed off because... It was the, the the microbial the phyla in, in his guts were dominated by um, car, uh, uh, bacteria that um, that break down carbohydrates and bacteria that break down fats, proteins and fats. And he is was, that pretty ordinary? That's ordinary for a Western uh-huh. industrialized diet. Yeah. He eats tons of vegetables, right? And he grows his own vegetables. And to be honest with you, he doesn't even wash them very well. So he's getting all kinds of good soil microbes at the same time. But no, his um, his microbiota was much the same as like the prime minister of France. <laughs> well, that sounds actually pretty good. I, I think we could, you know, he could go around bragging about that. I'd Probably. Um, okay, so I have, um, I'm going to have so many more questions for you, but I have one last one for the, the show. Um, you know, I imagine in setting out to do this work, um, was there anyone who you looked to and you thought, like, what they're doing is really interesting and you're really inspiring me? Either um, someone you came across at Columbia or a great, um, great inspiration somewhere along the way? Well, there's a lot of people that I admire, for sure. Um, and hopefully a woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, um, a department. The department that I was in at Columbia was um, Ecology, Evolution, and Environmental Biology. And the beauty of what those scientists, men and women, are, are working on is they're not just looking at um, how taking the chickadees out of an e- like a grasslands ecology can affect the charismatic organisms like the insects and the um, and the grass and the I love worms. that's called a charismatic yeah. organism. Oh, it's like if that. you can see it, it's pretty charismatic. It's pretty charismatic. <laughs> okay. In my book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're also looking at further down the scale how it how the how the lack how the loss of a chickadee or the decline in chickadee populations could affect um, photosynthesizers nitrogen fixers those bacterial bacteria that are involved in these big chemical systems of the planet the the takeaway i mean what what is so beautiful about the work they do is that they can they're trying to show how something as insig- to us kind of insignificant is a decline in a, a a little songbird population could end up affecting uh the uh Arrangement of gases in the atmosphere. Holy cow! Um, so, just we—I'd love to like end with a name, someone who's you know whose spirit we want to honor here. So, is there a professor or a? It could be a cook. Could be anyone <laughs> you'd like to? I have pay to, it for. you know, and I have to reach back to to Edward, Joby, my dad. You know, um, he excited that 
uh, interest in me um, into how one thing leads to another. I mean, I um, led from, I came from him. That's the analogy from uh, parent to child to grandchild, from, um, from soil to plant to gut microbiome. It's, in a way, the same um, beautiful chain of events told, the same story told over and over. And with that, everybody, that is the conclusion of this week's Speaking Broadly. Gina, how can people find you and tell them where to find your book, obviously on Amazon, but the full title and where to follow you on social? So the full title of the book is Microbia, A Journey into the Unseen World Around You. It's in bookstores everywhere. It just came out. Um, and, you know, all the online booksellers. And then I am at eugeniabone.com. So if you want to ask me something about your bacterioides, then your, <laughs> your, your bacterial firmicutes or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, if I can't answer the question, I can direct you to where you might want to go to look for your answer. That's great. And um, I'm... Dana Count, as you know, you can find me at FW Scout on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, looking forward to hearing from you and looking forward to having you back next week. Have a great week. And until then, I want to thank my engineer, David Tatashore, for another great show. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.